to the Modern Chemistry Podcast with your host, Paul Orange. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 13 of the Modern Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host for today's show, Paul Orange. Today on the show, I talk to Sylvia Marchison, and Sylvia is an associate professor at the University of Trieste in Italy, and she runs the Superstructures Lab there. And as you'll hear during our discussion, a big focus of the work of the lab is looking at self-assembling superstructures or supermolecules. These superstructures have a huge range of applications, everything potentially from chemical processes where they can be used as catalysts through to medicinal uses where they can actually be used as therapeutic agents with some very interesting properties. And in particular, you'll hear us talk about the design of the subunits and the building blocks of these supermolecules and how that affects the ultimate function and can confer specific properties on the final molecule. If you're interested in further reading, there will be links in the show notes, but I would recommend checking out the group's website, which is marchesonlab.com. Again, I will put a link to that in the show notes going to hand over to Sylvia in a moment but a couple of quick points before I do. Firstly I will be back at the end with some exciting news about the next podcast which I think is a really nice compliment and follow on from uh, the discussion that we have today and secondly just to say that today's interview starts slightly unusually. Sylvia and I were having a pre-interview chat and we got onto the topic of using social media and science communication and um, I just thought that was really useful to leave in because science communication is an ever-increasingly important topic especially with all the different channels we have available to us. So it's a couple of minutes or so and I know I don't sound particularly warmed up uh, during these first couple of minutes. Uh, I get there. Um, So um, please uh, bear with me during those first couple of minutes. But with that, I'm going to hand you straight over to Sylvia and I'll be back at the end. So I've uh, listened to your podcast. Um, Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. With Vittorio. I really enjoyed it. I also listened uh, to part of it with uh, Nessa. Okay. Are you, you, uh, you know Nessa as well? Uh, I mean, only on Twitter, mm-hmm. only through Twitter. So everybody does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think these days social media uh, is really important, and mm-hmm. um, you know, also scientists, we need to engage with the public, and um, I think it's also our duty to try mm-hmm. to engage and use uh, social media tools mm-hmm. because that's the thing now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Not always easy. Mm-hmm. Because I think it can be easy to get things wrong, so one has to be a little bit careful. But you sure. know, sure, you try, you learn. Uh, so I, I have to admit something. So I mean, I, I I was a scientist many many years ago, and I think one of the reasons that I moved away from doing practical sciences, um, I was never very good at the background reading. Uh, so reading publications is just—it's <laughs> not my cup of tea at all. Um, I lost myself okay. in reading. <laughs> I, I, I like. I spent. I, I got to about an hour and a half, and I realized of, of like looking at the, the work you're doing, and I am like, it was a rabbit hole. It's fascinating. Um, so I, you know, I, I'm really interested to 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 dig into this. I was I was I was. Eek. I realized that maybe Sorry. when I told you about the things we do, <laughs> I uh, tackled it more from. Um, let's say a storyteller point of view, because usually that works very effectively, especially with the general public Mm. and uh, with schools. 
So they like stories. It helps them uh, to follow the science. But perhaps you wanted something more practical, <laughs> more pragmatic about what we do, why we do it, and you know what can we do with these things and so on. But I'll, I'll just tell you. So basically, uh, our lab, uh, it's called Superstructures Lab because uh, we're really interested in um, assembling things together, starting from molecules and uh, sometimes getting aid also with uh, um, nanomaterials. Other times we form the nanomaterials with the molecules that self-organize. And so when the structures become way, way bigger than the uh, building blocks that compose them, then you can call them superstructures. And, you know, like uh, Lego is so fascinating. You can use Lego blocks and make all sorts of things. And now there's even uh, exhibitions, art exhibitions that go around at big museums in the world to show you, you know, how you can really make big spaceships or monuments out of Lego blocks and so on. So we would really love to be able to combine different components and really build uh, functional architectures and perhaps architectures can move and they can adapt and do different things over time as required. But I would say we're still trying to understand really how these molecules behave and how we can control their behavior. So we're not quite uh, where we'd like to be. I think there's still a long, a long way ahead. So uh, we're also interested in uh, keeping an eye on uh, sustainability. And so the materials that we develop are, uh, we, we need a solvent because molecules need to, to move first to have a, a solvent where they can move to organize. Mm. And so we, we work especially with water as a solvent. Uh, sometimes uh, we use acetonitrile as a green solvent, uh, but we try to stay away from all the other options that are um, less environmentally friendly, let's say. And uh, we try to use, uh, especially, we focus on the use of um, biomolecules, short peptides, so things that uh, uh, will not persist in the environment. And, um, and also building blocks that are extremely simple to make. So I was listening to Vittorio's podcast and uh, I realized we have more things in common than I thought. Because uh, some of the keywords he was using, such as uh, simplicity, uh, cost, and, uh, you know, to do something that can be really taken up also by uh, lower income countries and so on. Those are also our priorities. Of course, we're not perfect. Uh, sometimes we have to uh, compromise a little bit, uh, make compromises. So, for example, uh, we make the, the peptides by solid phase peptide synthesis, which is not really the most environmentally friendly uh, choice. Uh, however, it's very efficient, and especially when we have junior scientists, um, it's the, the most efficient way for them to get the building blocks to work with them. We're also developing new ways to make these uh, materials, for example, using enzymes and so trying to, um, or even uh, using microwave reactors uh, with reactions um, using water solvent. It's, it's tricky. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so we will need we need uh, further research in those areas, but we are aware that our process is not perfect from start to end, and so we're aware of the places where we can improve in terms of uh, sustainability, and we're working on it. Mm. So what do we do with these materials? Um, well, as I said, really, we, we, we focus on, uh, on how these uh, short peptides can, uh, so peptides made of uh, two amino acids, three amino acids, really simple molecules, how they can come together and form different nanostructures. We have uh, recently published uh, an article uh, on ACS Nano uh, where we have shown that uh, um, 
a specific uh, sequence of a tripeptide was affecting in inhibiting the fibrillization of uh, amyloid beta peptide, which is associated with Alzheimer's disease. And this is because the sequence uh, has two amino acids that, if you like, uh, act as bait. So they, they bind mm -hmm. to a motif in, um, in the beta peptide associated with Alzheimer's disease. And then there is another amino acid which is, um, acts as a breaker. So it breaks. It doesn't favor the formation of these fibrils. And so the, combi the combination of these two uh, things together basically um, makes this peptide um, self-assemble into nanoparticles. And when we tested it on um, amyloid beta peptide, we could see inhibition of the fibrillization. Of course, these experiments are just in vitro, so there's still a long way to go, but mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a good start. It's a promising start. We're also trying to mimic enzymes. So we have identified uh, short peptides that when they are in solution, they are not uh, active as catalysts. But when they self-assemble into these uh, big structures, uh, then they can become catalytically active uh, because they create these self-assembly works. It's um, hydrophobically driven. So these hydrophobic molecules don't like water too much mm -hmm. and they like to come together. Uh, but then you have to design them appropriately so that they don't just precipitate out of the solution, but actually they can cooperate mm -hmm. <laughs> with each other and uh, engage and form these functional structures. So when that happens, you can have the creation of hydrophobic pockets like you have in an enzyme. And if you have peptides, you can have uh, all sorts of functional groups to catalyze reactions. So you can start to think about uh, the catalytic triads and uh, catalytic functional groups that you have in enzymes, or you can also think of um, synthetic groups that you could add. For example, if you wanted to have, um, well, I will not go too much in detail because it's still uh, all in the making. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but let's say you, you can have uh, functional groups that are not uh, present, normally present in nature, and you mm -hmm. can uh, encode new um, catalytical functions in these structures. And then it, it gets interesting because if then the catalytic activity is present only in the superstructure, and you can, because it's all held together by weak bonds, low energy non-covalent mm -hmm. bonds, then you can easily disassemble it and reassemble it once you learn how you can switch that. You can use a variety of switches, changes mm -hmm. in pH, changes in temperature, um, chemical switches, uh, light, all sorts of things. Yeah. And so then you can switch the system on and off so you can assemble it and disassemble it. And so it assembles, it exerts a function, it catalyzes a reaction, for instance, or it inhibits a biological process or something else of interest, then you don't want to use it anymore and then you disassemble it. And I think the whole concept uh, is interesting also from the sustainability point of view, because, you know, just like when you when you go in a room, you, you switch on the light only when you need it, right? And then you switch it off when you get out of the room. Yeah. Uh, similarly, I think it's interesting if you develop systems that do not uh, keep an activity on all the time, like for example, with national, with traditional um, catalysts mm -hmm. or traditional drugs, but actually you can switch it on only when you need it. Mm -hmm. uh, another area where we are working, uh, but it will depend also on the funding that we attract, <laughs> that we manage to secure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're very much interested in antimicrobial systems. So we found that some of these peptides can uh, um, self-organize and form channels 
quite big channels, uh, water channels, so they can um, water can uh, pass through and then they have a hydrophobic exterior. So it would be really interesting if we could um, insert these channels in membranes, for example, in bacteria membranes. We noted that some of these systems are antimicrobial. Mm -hmm. uh, so bacteria don't, don't like them, um, but only when they are in the assembled state. So again, think, you know, uh, these days, one of the many issues we have is that um, there's lots of antimicrobial resistance. So we don't have many new antibiotics mm -hmm. and many of the antibiotics that we have are less effective than they used to be because bugs have learned how to um, bypass their activity and have become resistant. And this problem um, is not going away because we also have the problem of um, pollution of uh, land and waters with drugs, expired drugs, unused drugs, and so on, that keep a low activity in the environment. And then bugs become smarter and antibiotics less effective. So it's really an emergency. And uh, not many um, pharma companies are investing in antibiotics because it's quite a difficult sector that requires a lot of investment. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, we think it would be really uh, innovative if we could have these very simple building blocks that on their own are not antimicrobial and then you mm -hmm. can switch them on, have antimicrobial activity as long as you need it. And then when you don't need it anymore, you switch them off. And we're also working on irreversible switches. So how we can convert one of these self-assembling systems into something that does not assemble anymore. So then even if you release it in the environment, mm -hmm. it will not uh, regain antimicrobial activity. So it would, it would only... So these are the kind of areas where we are working. Yeah, so sorry. sorry. Yeah, so uh, we have a little bit of a time, like obviously on, on the Zoom. But in that last example, basically then you would use that molecule, it would assemble once, do a job, and then when it disassembled, that would it, it would never come back together again. Exactly. Right, okay. So then you, you don't build up that low level of activity that can drive resistance. In exactly, that. that's the concept. Ah. So we're working both on reversible and irreversible switches because for things like catalysts, you want mm -hmm. to reuse it. So you want reversible switches. Mm -hmm. But then if you think of the final disposal of, of your material, uh, mm -hmm. you really want to be able to switch it off irreversibly, whatever it does, mm -hmm. be it catalysis or be it antimicrobial activity and so on. Right. So this is the kind of things that... Uh, that we do. <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't say one important aspect, and that is that um, one caveat um, of peptides is that um, traditionally they haven't been really good for drug candidates, for example, because they, they are easily cut off by mm -hmm. enzymes. Uh, so they don't last in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in your body if you wanted to use them as drugs. However, what we do is we combine L-amino acids, which are the common amino acids, the building blocks of proteins, with uh, their mirror image, the D-amino acids, which are much rarer, although they do occur in nature. And uh, this uh, choice, uh, first of all, it helps us with uh, designing how these molecules can self-assemble and form these structures. Mm -hmm. But also um, it's important because it extends the lifetime of these materials. So eventually they will get biodegraded, but it takes a lot longer. And uh, you can fine tune the time that it takes enzyme to eat up basically these systems. 
by choosing the design, so by choosing how many D amino acids you place, which ones where, but also how tight are these supramolecular structures? Because we found when they're really tight, enzymes have a harder way to um, get through and find mm -hmm. the bonds that they need to hydrolyze. Right, okay, okay. So for, I guess, for anybody who's not familiar, yes. when you talk about L and D amino acids, so I, I did yes. a little bit of uh, research going back into my brain. So um, essentially amino acids can be thought of like your hands, right? You've got one, your left and your yes. right hand are mirror images of each other, but you can't put one on top of the other. You can't swap your left hand for your right hand. That their left and right. So normally we have this L form, which is the majority. And like you say, the mirror image, uh, they do occur in nature, but they're not commonly used by living organisms, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And uh, this is really important because, um, so as you have a left hand and a left and a, and a right hand, you also have a left foot and a right foot. <laughs> And uh, I think with the feet, it works better when you think of uh, the fact that um, the shoes, you know, your left mm -hmm. shoe um, is not designed for your right foot. So your right foot will really have a hard time to try if you try to fit it into a left uh, shoe. Mm -hmm. And this is important because it's at the basis of biological recognition. There is a large portion of molecules, even in, in your body, that mm -hmm. are uh, chiral. So they're like the hands or their feet. Mm -hmm. They look like each other, but they're not. You cannot put one on top of each other. And uh, this property, the, the chirality, so they're a mirror image of each other. If you imagine a mirror, you know, they're a mirror mm -hmm. image of each other, but not superimposable. This is important for molecular recognition. So molecules uh, within your body can recognize can be recognized by other molecules and recognize each other. And uh, mm. this ensures that things work. And uh, this mechanism of biological recognition mm. is also the basis of uh, the activity of many drugs. So many drugs, not all drugs, but a vast majority of drugs are chiral. And uh, so this is important. So they re get recognized by their target in your organism where they mm. exert their activity. Mm -hmm. So it's important for selectivity to reduce side effects and things like that. We think the kind of questions we are asking is uh, what happens when you play a little bit with this uh, system. So in your body, you will have mainly L-amino acids that form L-peptides. So left-handed amino acids are the building blocks of left-handed peptides that are the building blocks of left-handed proteins and enzymes. Uh, the kind of questions we ask is what happens when you insert a D-amino acid or two D-amino acids, so two uh, mirror images inside. And you you play a little bit you, you play a little bit of a mirror game a, a drawing that I really like but it, it's a pity we don't have uh, videos in this because <laughs> <laughs> well, you know we're so dependent on images. Yeah, mm? I was going to say if you if, if there's a link or something I can put it in the show notes so people can go and go and okay, have a look. Okay, I'll uh, yeah. I'll do that. Yeah. So there is a beautiful drawing that is uh, in London. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the original drawings by John Taniel for the book um, of Alice in Wonderland written mm -hmm. by Lewis Carroll. And to the British Library. So in one of the books, Alice returns to Wonderland by stepping through the mirror. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is this beautiful drawing where you have uh, on one side, uh, Alice in the real world that tries to step in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, Alice that stepped into Wonderland. So she's on the other side of the mm -hmm. mirror. And there are some common elements. So for example, there is a clock and you have the real world clock and then the Wonderland clock that looks 
almost the same, but it's actually animated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like to think of it as our systems that have some building blocks that are common to those that you find in real life, uh, commonly in nature, and other building blocks that are a little bit uh, peculiar. So that mm-hmm. would be the D amino acids. And this really gives the system a new function. Mm-hmm. So just like the clock becomes animated and uh, in Wonderland. Yeah, yeah. So this is the kind of things that we do. Cool. Cool. Um, so one of the things I was going to uh, ask you about a little bit was the self-assembling nature of the, yes. the, the the compounds that you study. And I think you already answered a little bit about the mechanism that causes that as- assembly to do with the hydrophobicity. Two questions that then they sort of like come to my mind. If you think of that as a, let's call it a functional molecule, whether it's a drug or an enzyme or whatever, does the fact that you just need to make these smaller subunits and basically put them in solution make them cheaper and easier to make and then uh, the second question is how easy is it to understand how you program these you know sub- subunits that you manufacture to to get them to to assemble into the the, the superstructures that you're looking for so we take inspiration from nature because nature does self-assembly all the time. Uh, so even our body is self-assembled. <laughs> yeah. So it builds functional structures such as uh, cell membranes, for instance, by putting together different elements in an ordered way. So it, it forms different areas. There is compartmentalization where different things occur, different chemical reactions occur. This is important uh, to build complex processes. So we take inspiration from there. And uh, yes, of course, if you try to build a a large molecule or a large structure by conventional means using, uh, let's say, organic chemistry Mm -hmm. and uh, form covalent bonds, as you would do in a polymer, depending on the level of functionality you want to put, but things can get quite costly. And the same goes for uh, proteins. Mm -hmm. Uh, You need a lot of skills also to handle these large molecules, to characterize them, to purify them. So it is a lot cheaper if you can actually have just two, three amino acids. And um, so just make those building blocks and let them then do the rest of the mm. chemistry for you. Yeah. So that's what we are trying to do. And uh, and definitely a, a big driver is um, sustainability because uh, you do uh, fewer synthetic steps, you use fewer resources, and this is also important for the cost because then it's a lot cheaper to make these building blocks and you mm. can make them on a large scale. And we like to think that this is the way to really implement these systems and bring them to market eventually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you need something that can be produced at a low cost on a large scale and easily. Yeah. So uh, asking, uh, sorry, answering your uh, second question mm-hmm. about how do you design these things? Well, there's lots of very smart scientists in supramolecular chemistry um, that uh, take advantage of the uh, rigidity of, uh, let's say, aromatic uh, structures. So you can have very rigid molecules that are more traditionally used in organic chemistry uh, because they're very rigid. So maybe they, they look a little bit more like the legal blocks. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know the kind of angles that they have and you can, uh, I think, more easily think of how you can lock them, interlock them with each other to build bigger things. Peptides are quite naughty <laughs> because they're very flexible, <laughs> right. flexible yeah. molecules. Mm-hmm. They don't like all this discipline, you know, in mm-hmm. taking a specific angle and stay like that all the time. Mm-hmm. They like to move about. So basically, you have to get to know them. 
And um, I've been working in this field for about 10 years. So I think <laughs> now I, I got to know peptides a little bit. And, uh, and once you know how they, they behave, then it becomes more easy to program them. And so you need to have a good um, compromise between hydrophobic components and hydrophilic components. And uh, you need to put that in the design so that the molecules then can uh, come close to each other and form these structures that uh, segregate, let's say, hydrophilic and hydrophobic components on different parts, mm -hmm. because this provides them with stability and then can engage effectively in uh, non-covalent interactions such as hydrogen bonds, for example, or pipeline stacking. And so, yeah, so it takes a little bit of time to get to know them, mm -hmm. but we are um, working hard to try to really identify design rules. So mm -hmm. hopefully soon we'll be able to actually, uh, you know, put out there um, uh, a large set of rules for people mm -hmm. to design these peptides. Wow. I mean, that that's kind of amazing when, when you say that. And, and in my mind, that actually blows my mind that you could actually say, look, here's, here's the book, right? If you follow this, you can design a peptide. <laughs> that's what we would like to do. Yeah. There's lots of hard work behind it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And thank you for doing it. <laughs> um, well, we're um, not the only ones. And yeah. I'm very fortunate because uh, I have a group of um, young scientists that are really mm. motivated and work hard and uh, with passion. They really believe in what they're doing. And this mm. is important. Yeah, yeah. Um, you touched on something there, which uh, you know I found sort of reading on your website and, and looking in the background. Um, you talk about doing simulations, and I guess talking about rules as well lends itself to computing quite easily because you can tell a computer a very big list of very complex rules, and it will understand them. So, how much does in silico work need to take place? Well, how much do you do before you then get to actually, you know, manufacturing and testing these things in wet chemistry? So there's different ways to proceed. There are excellent scientists that screen in silico and mm -hmm. then do the chemistry, do the experiments uh, based on what they found from the screening. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, well, in my experience, if you want to screen really large numbers really quickly, then you need to take some shortcuts. You mm -hmm. need to make some compromises. And so when you do that, uh, your systems may work very well on some things mm -hmm. that are very reliable, uh, but it may work less well on other things that are a little bit naughty. <laughs> so as we <laughs> yeah. said, these peptides being a bit naughty, we prefer to take a different approach and so when we do simulations, actually, uh, there is a collaborator of mine called uh, Attilio Varju at the University of Cagliari. He is a biophysicist mm -hmm. and he does the simulations for us. Mm -hmm. He's amazing and he doesn't take any shortcuts. So he really looks atom by atom. So all atoms are being uh, um, simulated mm -hmm. in explicit solvent and uh, he runs the dynamics. So he follows, I like to call it, he follows the dance of the peptides because yeah. they dance about and then they come together and dissociate and, and then eventually they form these structures. So this kind of computing uh, gives us a great deal of detail and it's vital for what we do because sometimes with experiments, we cannot get the kind of information that uh, simulations provide us. 
we also like to validate them. So we take the models and, for example, we um, calculate theoretical spectra that then we match with experimental spectra as a checkpoint. Mm -hmm. You know, are we really, uh, are the simulations truthful? So this is important. And so we do not run simulations for, you know, to screen large numbers. We do it more ad hoc to ask specific questions. Mm-hmm. As in, you know, we think this peptide is particularly interesting. It binds to amyloid beta peptide, for instance. How does it behave in water? And mm-hmm. then we really go in detail and, and see how it behaves and what happens when it binds to a beta. And then we validate this with experiments and so on. Mm-hmm. So this is our approach now. In the future, uh, once we get larger and larger libraries of compounds, I'd really like to... Um, go towards machine learning and uh, and trying to develop systems where um, basically we will use uh, in silico methods to look at the properties, uh, let's say, for example, spectra of all these peptides that assemble and try to identify specific signature, trying to learn new things that will help us identify even um, new sequences that we haven't thought about. But in order to do that, we need large numbers to start first to have really reliable systems. So I think we need to make more examples, more and more examples. Mm -hmm. And then once we reach a critical threshold of uh, having a a large enough libraries, then uh, surely Mm -hmm. uh, we'd love to use a more in silico methods to learn more and to let the computers learn for us. So yes, I think in silico is very, very important. Mm-hmm. In the past, maybe in silico methods were not so refined as they are now. From my experience, uh, some scientists are a little bit uh, skeptical perhaps, but I think modern uh, molecular models, methods, mm-hmm. and in silico techniques are so refined, they're so advanced that they really are reliable and we can learn a lot from mm-hmm. them. So I think it's important to combine them with experimental techniques. Cool. Changing direction a little bit. Yes. Have you come across any unexpected properties of any of the superstructures that have been formed? I think I read in one of your publications about one of your superstructures forms a a gel and it then becomes catalytically active as a gel, not when it's in solution. And that my mind kind of couldn't quite understand how does a, a, a sort of a semi-solid gel have activity that uh, we're still we're still trying to understand these systems there's lots to learn mm-hmm. so um the idea behind is that so if you if you think of proteins and mm-hmm. the way they they activate for example the functional groups in the catalytic sites you have a, a lot of interactions and then you have a hydrophobic environment and mm-hmm. Both aspects can alter the properties of a functional group. For example, if you have a group that tends to donate or take up a proton, then that ability will be changed dramatically by the environment of the active site of the enzyme. And so similarly, the idea is that uh, if you take uh, certain functional groups and you insert them into these self-assembling sequences, then in the supramolecular structure, you may have hydrophobic pockets or you may have uh, extended networks of hydrogen bonding, for example, or other types of interactions. Mm-hmm. And these can activate your uh, functional group 
in a in a way that is uh, that takes inspiration from enzymes let's say mm-hmm. yeah but it's not always straightforward to anticipate what will happen when molecules come together and so it's not so easy <laughs> to uh, design a large variety of uh, uh, catalysts with this approach mm-hmm. so we are learning as we go and so sometimes yes things can be unexpected um, mm-hmm. at times you can uh, think of an enzyme and see okay in the catalytic triad there is a serine let's Let's take a serine, that's an amino acid, mm-hmm. put it in the system, it will work better. And then sometimes it doesn't because it's just in the wrong place. And so that's when you need to, to go back to the, uh, to the board mm-hmm. and think a little bit harder and use a combination of in silico and experimental techniques to try to understand why didn't it work? You know, how these molecules come together in the assemblies? What mm-hmm. can we do to change that? I'm just aware of time. And yes. one of the things I like to ask the the guests on the show is is just a little bit about their career path and how they got here so especially if there are you know younger scientists listening just to understand the path ahead um and you know and 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 like many people i've spoken to you've had the experience of working in many different places around the world um to get to your uh position today Uh, how important do you think that ability to go and all how important do you think it is to develop a a career that you do go and work in different places and and different labs it's important but i think uh it's important also for uh happiness (laughs) at least the work in my case (laughs) that's a very important reason I think, well, in my experience, uh, it certainly helped the fact that I that I traveled, but it also helped the fact that uh, I tried to follow my instinct, uh, my motivation, my curiosity. So I tried to do the things that I wanted mm-hmm. to do, even though it meant uh, going to another country, travel and reinvent myself in a way. So I graduated in, um, in Trieste in Italy. Mm. So in this uh, gorgeous place, as we were saying, because yeah. it's nested between the Mediterranean Sea and the Alps uh, in medicinal chemistry. And then I wanted to see the world. So I moved to UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then it was a little bit easier than <laughs> than these days yeah and uh, i had a brief spell at a multinational company in r&d for a summer internship in the mm-hmm. northern england and then i was fortunate to get a um, phd uh, scholarship so i did my phd at the university of edinburgh and that was in scotland and that was um midway between organic chemistry and molecular biology so I started to learn uh, also uh, how to play with uh, with cells uh, and recombinant mm-hmm. DNA, and I thought that was really fascinating. And then I was actually happy to settle in Edinburgh, but uh, my supervisor, just uh, one year after I started a PhD, moved to London. Mm-hmm. So the whole group moved to London, and uh, I spent two years there. And London is very vibrant. I learned to be quick in London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I went on for a postdoc in uh, cell biology in um, Finland at the University of Helsinki. I wanted to learn about the Scandinavian culture. And uh, actually, I would say, uh, thinking retrospectively, that that was really when I started to work with supramolecular chemistry, because I was looking at protein-peptide interactions that are responsible for um, basically the mechanisms of cells when they stick onto something and when they move. And then after that, I went to Australia and... um, really inspiring place. Uh, I had a um, joint uh, postdoc fellowship between uh, CSRO, which is Australia's National Science Agency, 
and uh, Monash University in Melbourne. And uh, there it was great because, again, I had a multidisciplinary training. So I was uh, doing organic chemistry, uh, electrospinning, uh, got trained in the clean room, micro patterns, uh, using XPS, maneuvering this uh, robotic hand uh, within the XPS instrument. It was great. And then studying how cells were uh, responding to the materials we were making. So there I was working on biomaterials for tissue regeneration. Mm -hmm. And after all this traveling around the world, uh, it was time to get closer to my family. And so I returned to Italy and uh, I managed to secure a tenure track position and then got tenure. Uh, so mm -hmm. now I'm associate professor at the University of Trieste, which is right at the border. So when I need to go abroad and, and see new places, I can easily do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, as, as we were talking about earlier on, is something I found out when improving my geography knowledge by actually locating Trieste on, on the map. So, uh, yeah. Yes, there's lots of diversity. So I think this whole process was important because uh, whenever one uh, has to relocate abroad, mm. you are forced to think a little bit differently. You cannot rely on your contacts anymore. Mm. You know, around we have family and friends that can help us in the case of mm. need. Uh, so it really forces you to think in new ways, uh, to troubleshoot and solve your problems on your own. So you grow a lot. And I think also being exposed to different cultures, uh, it could be different disciplines of science or it could be different cultures in, in other countries. Uh, I think also that forces you to think differently. So it makes you a better scientist. And I think it can also make you a better human if you learn to be more tolerant and to embrace uh, new cultures and embrace diversity. Well said, well said, um, I agree. Sylvia, again, I'm aware of time. I think we should wrap up there. Um, yes, you're, so you're, you're, you're more than you're, welcome to visit us. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about our work uh, and best wishes for everything. Thank you, no, and, and thank you. Your passion comes through. It's really exciting. And anybody listening, please go and check out Sylvia's website and her publications. You will not be disappointed, I guarantee it. Sylvia, thank you very much. Thank you. Right, well, that was amazing, wasn't it? Uh, thank you very much for listening through to the end. I hope you all enjoyed that discussion with Sylvia. And I would heartily recommend you to check out her website and, and read a little bit more around the topic. Of course, I have to thank Sylvia once again for her time um, and especially for bearing with us during the frustrations we had where we needed to swap laptops before we were able to start recording. And also a thank you to Vittorio Saggiomo, uh, who was on the show last time and Vittorio uh, suggested and connected me uh, with Sylvia. So uh, Vittorio, thanks very much for that. Then speaking about connections, Vittorio also connected me with the guest for our next show, episode 14. So Elisa Fada. I just think this is a great compliment and continuation of the discussion that you just heard. Elisa does a lot of work in computational modeling and has fairly recently published um, some really interesting work looking at the glycoprotein complex that is the spike protein of the coronavirus and how the makeup and the structure and the function of that spike protein has big influences on the infectivity of the virus itself. So rather than wait our typical two months, we're actually going to put that episode out in about two weeks time. So if you're listening to this episode on the day it goes live, uh, wait a couple of weeks, which I think will be the 24th of June, and then you'll be able to hear that interview with Elisa, uh, which I'm going to tell you now, it's another cracker. So I think that's 
everything for today again thanks for listening uh if you enjoy this show please do leave us a review um if you subscribe tell somebody else and also we're always on the lookout for great guests so whether it's you or somebody you know who think would be a great guest for the show please do drop us a line via the contact page at www.helgroup.com but with that stay safe stay well and i will speak to you in just a couple of weeks on the next episode of the modern chemistry podcast Thanks for listening to the Modern Chemistry Podcast. Our theme music is provided by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll have the next episode drop straight into your podcast feed.